It's our regular feedback show, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 524. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Every so often, we like to stop and do a feedback episode to tackle questions that have come in and respond to things that we're hearing out there in our listening community. And if you have a question or comment you'd like us to consider for a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way to get it to us. And I am joined today, as I am most of our feedback episodes, by Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, Dave. Glad to have you back. It's been a couple months, actually, since we did a feedback episode. So we have a whole bunch of questions. I'm not sure how many we're going to get to today because we've got some uh, some complex questions. But let's just go ahead and dive in here with the first one from Linda. Linda wrote in to me and said, have you come across organizational burnout? I do need to address it because it is a stopping point in us moving forward. An example recently is in one of the teams that I lead, we had a conversation about the way to do something. There are essentially two ways to approach this particular kind of work and good arguments for both ways in our industry. As we talked about exploring the other way, some of the staff members began to cry. I asked why they were crying, that we must be able to consider other ways. They couldn't tell me. I can't tell if it's burnout, passion, or fear. I really don't know, but I'm hoping that if I open conversation about vulnerability, talk about mine, and then open up to them, that they will begin to separate themselves from it so that we can have objective conversations. People are always talking about work-life balance, and I'm sympathetic to this. However, every time we try to implement something that might benefit this, someone says it's impacting on their mental health. Any thoughts? Bonnie, there's a lot in this question. I will add, I did take out a few details here uh, just for confidentiality. Uh, This person is a leader in an industry that has been heavily affected by COVID. So that might frame the bit of our response to this. What do you think, Bonnie? When I think about what your questions and just what Dave just said in terms of setting a context, I don't really think of any industries that haven't been affected, which really comes down to people. I mean, I find myself wanting to separate your what you wrote into just the overarching difficulties that so many people are facing with the exact type of thing that you were attempting to solve. The, this Dave said he took a few things out. I imagine that even if I read your entire message, <laughs> there would be a lot of context still to think about and questions to want to ask you. I want to hone in on one thing that you wrote. You said there are essentially two ways to approach this particular kind of work and good arguments for both ways in our industry. That to me is representative of what's called dualistic thinking. And in any industry that I can think of, dualistic thinking and as a leader is really a dangerous way to find ourselves that in terms of our practice, in terms of getting better at what we do, in terms of approaching the challenges that we're facing, there's hardly ever just two ways. And in fact, if you think about innovation and and wanting to be able to meet customers' needs better, 
we have to break out of thinking that it's X or it's Y. And so I think that as a leader, that's one thing I would caution you against. And especially when in a circumstance where you're being met with a lot of emotion, I'm wondering if both just the general difficulties the people you're leading are facing compounded with a leadership style that says there's two ways to do this. And you didn't say this, but I would suspect from what you wrote, perhaps you're lending yourselves to thinking one of these two possible ways is the way to do it. It sounds like you're really wanting to influence them toward a particular path and are being met with a lot of emotion. That being said, though, and I I, I really have to say, Dave, I'm a little embarrassed to talk about this because I think there's I want where I work, I want to show up as an authentic person. And yet at the same time, I don't think it's super helpful if we show up to work and are crying a lot. <laughs> like so it's, it's kind of like I, I found out recently that someone I really care a lot about and enjoy collaborating with is leaving our organization. And I got, um, I'm going to say it, that I got teary eyed, but we both know <laughs> it was worse than teary eyed in front of some of my colleagues. And, you know, I don't think I really want to apologize for that. You know what I mean? I think we should get close to the people we work with and that that is going to evoke a kind of emotion, but that I also don't think it would be really helpful if I just cried on a regular basis at work. You know, I just, it's it's kind of this mix between things. So when I think about people crying and especially multiple people crying in a meeting, to me, that's a time to go, whatever we're talking about, I, I want to set that aside for a moment and I want to go, Gosh, I'm hearing a lot going on here. Can we can we set this aside? And can you just tell me what's what's going on? And sitting through the awkward pauses. Actually, there's a, something called the eight second rule. Generally, I talk about this in context of being a teacher or giving presentations or something like that. That when you ask a question, if you'd like your learners or your audience to know that you're not asking it rhetorically. You pause for one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000. And I'm not actually going to count it out for you, but you could imagine that's a really long time. But to slow yourself down, to give that room and space to find out what's really going on. And if it's really directed toward this thing, whatever it is you're trying to figure out together, this A or B option, I suspect there's probably a lot more going on there. And so I would want to leave that all aside. When I read your words, Linda, I hear so much about you wanting to fix this. And I think all of us want to fix things when we see people that are in pain and they're hurting. and Or, or even if we don't feel empathetic, if those tears frustrate us because we feel like they're tears that just want to hold the organization back from getting to where they want to be, even if we don't feel that empathy of other people um, expressing emotion like that, then even if we want to just focus on being able to move forward, we're not going to really be able to move people forward until we can find out a little bit more about what's going on and step away from us wanting to fix it and step closer toward us wanting to understand it. And that can be really hard. I was just communicating with someone about my Clifton Strengths Finder. And it's somebody who's applying for a position at my institution. And I just thought I'd 
because of the kinds of questions that he asked, I wanted to give him a little sense of who I was. So I wrote about my strengths. And I was also trying to model that, you know, talking about you want to give this person a realistic picture of what it would be like to work where you do, but you also don't want to <laughs> give them the full story. So anyway, I was talking about my strengths and I was sharing a little bit about uh, my activation strength and futuristic and all those things that anytime our strengths, the volume gets turned up too loud on them, they can become our weaknesses. And so I would be just wanting to think about hoping you can move away a little bit from trying to fix it into listening deeper and finding out what's going on. And um, that can be really hard to do, especially if I'm reading your words, I'm reading between the lines accurately. And that is a struggle for you to, in in leadership, when Dave and I first started getting our master's degree, let alone doctorates, do you remember, Dave, that they would talk about leadership as a continuum? So from very task-oriented more, more management, I guess, task-oriented versus relationship. That's mm. not that's not a dichotomy, speaking of dichotomous choices, but it's definitely some of us can be leaning too hard in one direction. And if you do find yourself being more task-focused than relationship-focused, this could be an indicator to you that you need to consider that with this group. Dave, I really literally, this is so hard for me because there's so much I could say. The last thing I just think that might be helpful for you is to get a little bit of information about mental health and what kinds of benefits that your organization may offer in terms of that, because we're definitely seeing a lot of issues with mental health, with depression, with anxiety. And I mean, certainly you never, never, never want to be the armchair psychologist to be diagnosing other people. But if and when it comes up that you see that that really anxiety is presenting itself and people are asking for help, I always want to be aware of what does our HR department, you know, what what can be the speaking of fixing things, <laughs> you can't fix it, but you can offer resources and just or even talk to your HR department about, gosh, you're seeing a lot of emotions coming up and you want to be sensitive to that and making sure that people have the resources they need. But the, gosh, it just sounds like You've got a lot of challenges as a leader, and the people on this team are really having difficulties. And to the extent that you can separate out the emotion from your desire to want to fix this one thing, I'd encourage you to do that. I'd also encourage you to think about as a leader, can you reframe whatever this thing is Mm -hmm. to something more than just A or B that may be holding you back? I'm so glad you brought up uh, burnout and mental health, Bonnie. I was thinking about that in the context of some of the trends I'm seeing. We had an academy session a couple weeks ago, and someone had mentioned that they had a couple of employees out on mental health leave, or they used the word, I can't remember the exact word they used, um, but but they framed it that way. And then someone else mentioned the same thing. And I don't know what got me thinking to to ask it, but I uh, I just asked the question of uh, the eight of us here. How many of you have someone who is out right now of work because of mental health or stress or burnout? And every single person raised their hand. And in fact, in 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 most cases, people had multiple employees who were dealing with this right now. And so just to underscore the challenge that so many of us and organizations are facing right now, and we will be doing more on that in future episodes for sure uh, because of the importance of that. Speaking of positive spillover, Bonnie, you and I had almost the same reaction to this question, even though we didn't coordinate talking about it earlier. So I want to reinforce something you said, actually both things that you said. 
One of them is I did also zero in on this thing that you wrote, Linda, about having this meeting and multiple people beginning to cry, and then you asking why they were crying. And I don't, obviously, we don't know, we don't have you here, so we don't know what you literally said during that. But one of the things to reinforce what Bonnie said, when that comes up, and it's especially when it's a surprise, as it sounds like in the context of your message here, like you were not expecting this kind of a response. To Bonnie's point, stopping and really putting aside whatever the meeting was going to be about and really zeroing in on that, which you did. The part I'd add is it's important both what you say and how you say it. So you you wrote that you asked why they were crying. Now, you may have literally asked that or you may have said it a different way. I often invite people to take out that word why, especially in situations like this where there's a lot of emotion, and to replace it maybe with a what, for example. And then to come to it from a place of curiosity. So rather than saying, uh, why are you crying, which could sound, depending on how it's asked, could put people on the defensive. Well, I'm not, a, I'm not allowed to cry, maybe what they hear, right? Is to ask a question that is, the language is maybe changing that to a what. What's causing the tears? What's causing the emotion? And also there's a how you ask this. So you could, you could say a what, but you could still say it in a way that puts people on the defensive. Well, what's causing these tears, right? (laughs) That's not the way to say it. Um, If you can come to that moment from a place of lightness and curiosity and heart, I'm noticing a lot of emotion on this. What's causing the tears? And then, like Bonnie said, shutting up, right? And then creating the space for people to say whatever they need to say. I'm guessing, Linda, you're missing something big if there's multiple people showing emotion that seems like a surprise in a meeting like this. And that's an opportunity, perhaps not in that meeting, perhaps people don't feel comfortable or safe to be able to say what it is they would like to say, but that may be also something that you then ask a little bit about in a one-on-one or casually, of gosh, you know, I was thinking about that meeting a couple of days ago, and and I said something, and I noticed that it triggered emotion for some people. What do you think is causing that emotion? And and just play, approaching that from a place of curiosity. The other thing that Bonnie said, which I also really wanted to reinforce, is you know thinking about leadership as the different parts of it, and 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 she mentioned management and and also leadership, and you've heard me say on the show before that management I, I think is about handling complexity and leadership's about handling change, and I I and saying that out loud, I realize that sometimes me too we think about leadership as well. I need to do change, I need to drive change, and yes, that is part of handling change. But if I maybe frame that a little differently, at least the way I think about it in my mind, but I haven't said out loud before on the show, is leadership is about answering the question of change. And sometimes the answer to that question is not to change anything at all. And particularly, Linda, because you are in an industry where there has been so much change forced on you and others over the last year because of the pandemic and because people have had so little control in so many different parts of their work and then of their lives the context of this question sounds to me like this is a this is not a something we're being forced to change this is a oh well you know what we should think about how we could do this differently 
Another way to approach this is you might say, you know what? This is something right now we don't have to change. This is something we as an organization, yeah, maybe down the road, we're going to explore how we might do it differently. But this is something as a leader that I can say for our team, let's just keep this the same right now. Let's have this be the, the thing that provides us some stability because people need that a lot right now. Something that isn't changing that provides stability. And it's not a forever thing, but it might be a for now thing for the next six months, for the next 90 days, whatever is the right time frame. And I think it would be an opportunity to engage your team in talking about that, about not just the change itself, but what, how are we thinking about change right now and what can we also maybe not change that would be helpful to people. So I hope that's helpful to you in some way. And I know we're making some assumptions on our response here, but I hope that's helpful to you and others in thinking about how you might approach what's next. And please let us know what was helpful from this. Our next question comes from Taylor. Taylor says, I'm starting in a new company with a new role to lead a key function. I expect that I'll need to make some changes on team structure and even people. I wonder if you may have some advice how to get started in leading this team. I listened to episode 192, How to Create Team Guidelines with Susan Gerke. Would it be better to start this from the beginning? or after I've decided on some changes and then set up those guidelines. Taylor, thank you so much for this question. We've had Susan on the show a number of times over the years. She's a Teams expert, so I'll link to this episode in the notes as well. Many other conversations we've had for her that had with her that are helpful on Teams also. This particular episode is referenced a lot in our library and is a constant topic of conversation within our academy is how to create team guidelines. And the invitation Susan makes to us in this episode is to actually create team guidelines to as a team to do this because a lot of teams do not do this, or at least they do not do it in such a way that it really gets people talking and goes through the process of creating teams and creating the culture that'll help a team to perform well. Now, the timing piece is your question. When do I do it? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer in every situation. Obviously, every situation is different with the variables. I think there are some obvious points to do it. And one of the points to do it is when you are taking on a new role and leading a team. The other obvious point to do it would be after a, a team is coming together for the first time, or uh, probably the third one would be after a big change has happened and contextually things are different, and now the team is handling new things. So I think it's a question of how imminent this this change is you're talking about. So if you're going to make some changes to team structure and people and you're going to do that soon in the next 30 days or so or shortly thereafter, yeah, I think probably do that first, right? I mean, especially if it's something you've already decided or the organization has already decided, do that first. Let people have some time to process that change to think about whether it's structural roles changes. You mentioned people, so maybe people are coming in or leaving the organization. That's big change. And we all need time to process not only change, but then the transition that comes with change. So if that's imminent, I would, in most situations, do that first. Have that change happen, go through that process that it sounds like you're already on the path of doing. And then allow people some space and some time to process that. So, for example, if you're going to do an organizational redesign on Monday, 
Wednesday morning is probably not the time to have the expectations exercise with the new team that's emerged in whatever form it is. Uh, give people some time and space to process things and get used to the change and start to transition. And then that's a point where you can get into expectations and creating expectations. Although this is generally not the problem with this, Taylor. It's usually the opposite. The The problem is usually not doing team expectations too quickly. The problem is not doing them at all. So yeah, there's of course you can do it too quickly. The bigger issue tends to be is that someone like you says, okay, well, I think maybe in the future, maybe six to nine months from now, we're going to have some kind of change. Maybe we're going to redo a restructure. So I'm just going to wait and not really formalize things yet. We're not going to have the team uh, guideline discussion. And then you know, six months goes by and the team's never really processed the, how we handle conflict. And then maybe the restructure happens, maybe it doesn't. So I, I think there's a there's, the danger is going down the other side too of not ever doing it. So those would be two considerations for you. And then the final thing I would say on this is, um, as you you write, would it be get better to start from the beginning or after I've decided on some changes and then set up those guidelines? And you use the word I here, and this may just be the way you wrote it, but one of the key points in the process of setting up team guidelines is that it is not a leader coming into a team and saying, here are going to be our guidelines and our objectives. I think you probably get that, Taylor, because you listened to that episode and just the, you're asking us this question. But for everyone else, if you really want to go through a good process of creating good team dynamics, good team guidelines, that happens with the team. It's not someone coming in or leader or whoever in the organization and saying, these are the team guidelines. It's a process of the team forming those together. And that is as important, if not more so, than whatever guidelines emerge. It's the process that brings people together and helps the team to perform effectively. Like Dave, I picked up on your use of the word I in a lot of your writing, although in my case, it was up front. You said, I'm starting at a new company. I expect that I will need to make some changes, etc. This, to me, seems to indicate that you have some control. You haven't been brought in to say you're expected in X period of time to do a restructure, that you see opportunities and that you might be a little bit like me, that maximizer or that achiever or, or, or wanting things to be moving forward, not clinging to status quo. And I want to really caution you around this. There's a wonderful book called The First 90 Days that I've never read. But boy, oh boy, <laughs> heard enough about it to really feel like I've read it. That's a wonderful guide for new leaders. I pick up a lot of this stuff off of Peter Block's work in a book called The Empowered Manager. But the whole idea here is that your first 90 days, the best thing that you can do is to listen and learn and observe I think, Dave, we all have these stories of working in organizations and then somebody new comes in and they're just on repeat. It's just a, a mixtape track that just keeps playing yeah. at my insert old company's name here. At insert old company's name here, we used to do insert old process here. And even if you were right, even if you just are brilliant and you are Mr. Fix-It and you really do know all this stuff, the problem with leadership is it's Yes, partially about the decision. The the if you look at think about a mathematical calculation, the equals quality decision, what comes before the equal sign is yes, the decision. So even if you know the right thing to do and put the right in air quotes, 
Leadership means that it's multiplied by people's enrollment in the vision for whatever it is that that decision is hoping to change or fix or make possible. And if you leave people behind because you have the, quote, right decisions, you can't get anywhere. And you're going to end up worse off than you could have started. So we do have to be patient because, yeah, sometimes in cultures there, I mean, in fact, sometimes, most of the time, human nature status quo. Most systems will fight to stay the same unless there's a, John Cotter mentions a lot, a a sense of urgency. And sometimes as a leader, you can bring in and ask questions that help people express and identify their own urgency that perhaps they've become complacent and don't really recognize anymore. But as long as you're asking questions and in those, I, I literally set a timer for yourself, <laughs> set a little countdown somewhere. I am not going to give unsolicited advice. In fact, I'm really going to even resist giving solicited advice. I'm thinking about a person I work with, Renee. You know, I've talked a lot about him. And I can remember him coming in and them saying, okay, he's expected to come in. And I don't even remember how long he had been there. But yes, tell us all the things that you've learned. And he was so wise. He he just publicly said, how could I know? And I, I wish I could remember how he said it. But you know, that's a lot of pressure because you, you get hired and you come in and you're, you're expected a lot of times to have already figured that out. And to anything that you can do, Taylor, to resist that temptation, even though people will ask it of you and it'll feel so much like you should be expected. Oh, I would really try to hold back because the, what you will gain, both in terms of your own learning, because it is really uncomfortable to not know at all what you're talking about. That is an uncomfortable <laughs> uncomfortable thing to be in. So, but boy, just lean into that discomfort because while you're leaning into that discomfort, think of how much you're both learning, but also the kind of trust that you're fostering with these people that you're gonna be leading potentially through a lot of change. So I'm not saying don't change. I'm saying hold off and really resist that desire to come in and fix things. Taylor, thanks so much for writing in, and I hope this is helpful to you. Let's see. Let's do one more, Bonnie. Uh, we've got a question here from Robert as well. Robert, oh, <laughs> Bonnie, if I had a dollar for every time I got this kind of question. I am a manager, and I oversee a large staff. I report directly to a senior executive. My issue is that it is impossible to have any discussion with my boss related to my position, growth, or career prospects. He doesn't manage me at all, and there is no performance management. At review time, I receive nothing besides a token increase. There's no explanation or discussion. My feeling is that he dislikes confrontation and speaking about sensitive topics. When I've tried to set up discussions, they inevitably get moved or canceled with excuses that he had an urgent appointment. With others, there is a general acceptance that this is how things are here. However, this has left me feeling extremely demotivated and despondent. Obviously, the easy option is to look for another job, but I'm happy with the business. It's a great growth story and generally a good place to be. The issue I have is with my management. How would you suggest I approach this? Bonnie, I know three people right now who have this exact same situation. What do you think? I've got two things. One, I'll just mention that we do need to listen to our intuition. If it seems like he wasn't wanting to speak with you because there was some huge, big secret challenge that he had, you weren't performing up to expectations. That's, of course, something you'd want to explore. But that's not really the sense that I'm getting here. The general sense I'm getting is that this person is perhaps 
one or the other or both, perhaps not competent at having conversations about someone's career growth or doesn't like doing it or both of those things. Now, one of the things we have to be careful of is expecting for the person that we report to to be our one and only <laughs> good. Sometimes this comes up with marriage too, like <laughs> that your your marriage partner is going to be you know, the person that you get everything from every aspect of, I mean, of course, for me, that's the case, but like, so <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I mean, actually, Dave and I happen to have a lot in common, so we can geek out about computer stuff and podcasting and all that stuff. But if you let's say that Dave loved fishing, it's not really true. <laughs> but if he loved fishing, I've been fishing once and it ended in tears. I was seven, but like camping he, would be the better <laughs> analogy here, probably. He, he, well, yeah, I mean, actually, that is that is probably a good analogy in the yeah. sense of, yeah, so Dave's gone camping with other people. And sometimes he goes camping just with the kids and, and that I can't be everything to him in the same way that our people that we report to. They can't do everything for us. And so I I happen to report to someone who, for all my ways of, of being able to assess these things, also doesn't like conversations like this. But I'm in such a stage in both my life and in my career that it doesn't matter to me. I'm not I'm not looking for that next promotion or, or or next opportunity. So but if I was, I think one model that would be particularly helpful to me and could be to you as well. I've heard this expressed, Dave, as a personal board of directors. But rather hmm. than leaving for our employers to be it's this it's this dependent relationship that Peter Block talks about a lot that is really dangerous to get in both with your organizations and also with the person that you report to directly. I'd encourage you to think more expansively about this, both outside of just expecting this from the person you report to, but also outside of your organization. And that's, to me, where some really exciting things can happen, even if you stay at the same company for 20 years, by the way. I tend to be someone who stays at organizations for long times. But I've worked at organizations for a long time and didn't have, like I have today, so many external contacts and opportunities to learn about how other organizations outside of mine do things. And boy, I would always rather be in the position I'm in today where I get those opportunities to learn so much, both from outside my organization as well as from within. It's really healthy, I think. I think it's the healthiest way that I know how to work. So being thinking about your personal board of directors, this would be things like, and Dave, please feel free to step in here if you're thinking of them. You know, you might have a colleague or a mentor who's really, really understands if you're on a job search, that's the person you want to talk to because maybe it's been a while since you've been on one and they know how to handle things like, oh my gosh, what if I've got multiple offers coming in or they're all at different stages or now we're to the salary negotiation, how do I do this? So do you have someone on your board of directors that you can be talking to about that? And then do you have someone on your board of your personal board of directors that loves learning really has it figured out how to pursue lifelong learning, has lots of outlets for doing that and processes for doing that. Money is another thing that, you know, your chief financial officer, which not literally, but like the person you could talk to about investing in money and maybe you're buying your first home or maybe you're downsizing. So what are the other things that you have heard people talk about with the personal board of directors? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I, I wasn't thinking about it through the lens of discipline until so you just said that. But yeah, it's certainly financial, parenting, friendships, hobbies, career, industry, uh, expertise. I mean, there's uh, and uh, uh, faith based, of course. Um, boy, there, and there's probably five or ten more. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of that. Um, you know, finding the people who in your life are are really good, either good at those things or have a lot more experience than you do, are ahead of you on the journey on those areas. Uh, those are fun people to be able to engage. And then, um, and hopefully they can provide some expert perspective to you of, yes, be empathetic, but like we talked about in a recent episode with Ethan Cross on Chatter, that people can provide empathy for your situation and also that they can also provide you feedback and, um, and take you, help you to go to the next step in addition to the empathy. Dave, what, what's on your mind with this question? Uh, Robert, I, I hear you on this. I mean, there's so much research that our job satisfaction is often influenced heavily by our individual manager, much more so than the culture of the organization or the organization as a whole. So I hear you. It's hard. And I've been at times in my career on this too. And also, it sounds like we don't know. We're just going on what you told us. But since you are getting increases, since you're not getting any kind of critical feedback and the other critical thing that you mentioned in this question is other people in the organization notice this too with this person. It's not sounding like it's personal. It may feel personal. And in fact, I'm sure it does feel personal, but it's probably really not about you. And the reason I mentioned early on that this question is what I, I do literally know three people who have this exact same situation happening right now is this is so common. So many managers and I'm sorry to say, but especially at the executive level, we think this gets better as we go higher up. In my experience, it gets worse. So many people at the executive level, either to Bonnie's point, either they're not able to or not willing to or just not equipped or they never got that skill set, whatever, who knows. But for whatever reason, they're not. And so you can spend a lot of time focusing in on that or and or you might pivot and say, well, here's the opportunity here. And like, you've got a lot of autonomy, it sounds like, to be able to maybe do some things that you might not be able to do if you had someone who was a micromanager. And I have had both <laughs> of those managers and they both bring their challenges, right? But some of the most creative times in my career have been at times when I had a manager who was pretty hands-off and it gave me the flexibility to be able to do some different things. And so I love the invitation from Bonnie here to think about a personal board of advisors, whether you formalize that or actually called it that, but to actually start reaching out and looking for, in addition to him, who else can really speak into your career growth, your next step. And what you may want to do is go back to the episode we aired the last few months on just how to define a role. Now, we looked at that through the lens, and I'll link to it here in the episode notes. We looked at it through the lens of if I'm the manager, how do I define a role for someone else? But the other way to look at that is if I'm coming to the conversation and no one's really defined my role well for me, how do I put forward the framework and lean into that and be the person who's driving my career? Which, by the way, even if you have a boss who is an amazing coach, mentor, and career evangelist for you, Ultimately, it's still you, number one, driving your career. And I think you coming into some of those conversations with him, maybe with a framework for your role and the objectives you're working on this year, he may have nothing to say about that. He may not add anything into that conversation ever. 
But you having done that for yourself is going to get you focused on what's next, uh, identify the next steps you need, and it's also going to help you to identify the experts and the people out there in your organization, in your industry, in your personal network that will help you drive forward on getting better at those skills now and for the future. Lots of related episodes to this conversation. If something here got you thinking and you want to dive in more, first of all, I'd recommend episode 142, The Way to Lead After a Workplace Loss. We touched on that a little bit in this conversation, and Bonnie also mentioned her colleague, Andrew Stenhouse. He was my guest on that episode. Andrew has a long and successful career in many areas, including serving as a chaplain. And uh, in addition to his academic experience and organizational experience, what a wonderful conversation that was to help us to think about how do we handle a situation where there has been a loss in the workplace. By the way, loss is a big umbrella. There's a lot of things that can be lost. Episode 142, if you're someone who is facing that right now, is the starting point for you. I'd also recommend episode 249. Bonnie mentioned the work of John Cotter. He was uh, on that episode talking about how to succeed with leadership and management and drawing the distinction between the two. And of course, his very well-known work on organizational change. We dove into some of that as well in episode 249. I already mentioned earlier episode 192, how to create team guidelines with Susan Gerke, which is helpful if that's something you're thinking about. A great follow-up to that episode, a real practical follow-up, is episode 349, The Path to Start Leading Your Team with John Pinheiro. John and I, in that episode, talked about his transition into leading a new team. John is one of our longtime listeners, and he walked us through in that episode all of the different tools and models, including the Creating Team Guidelines model, but many others that he used in bringing together a new team and helping that team experience a ton of success. Episode 349 is a real practical guide on how one of our listeners has done that. And then finally, in response to Robert's question, I mentioned two past episodes. One of them is episode 516, How to Find Helpful Advisors. Ethan Cross was my guest on that episode. His best-selling book, Chatter, featured there. And we talked about how you can find those people that we recommended to Robert that are helpful advisors and mentors and coaches to you in different areas. Uh, that's a worthwhile listen for you if you're thinking that way. And then finally, I also recommend episode 517, How to Define a Role. In that conversation, Pat Griffin joined me from Dale Carnegie, and we talked about how to actually define a role, get that down on paper, make it really clear what someone's job responsibilities are, and maybe that role is your own, as I mentioned in the conversation today, episode 517, a wonderful starting point for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. Every episode is searchable by topic. Uh, We've tagged this episode under a number of areas, including under Bonnie, because she is one of the tags on the website. So if you want to just spend hours listening to Bonnie, there you go. Just hit the tag. Every episode is cataloged in this way, of course. Uh, You can find whatever you're looking for right now, whether it is on facilitating meetings, handling feedback, negotiation skills, presentation skills, so much there in the library. Once you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you'll have full access to the entire library, searchable by topic, plus access to all of the free audio courses, the member casts, my book notes, and of course, my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday. 
coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership, and when you do, you'll be off and running with access everywhere. I'll see you back for our next conversation on leadership on Monday. Have a great week, and I look forward to our next conversation.